Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. And now from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files with your host, David Axelrod. I love talking with Dan Baltz, the uh, national correspondent for the uh, Washington Post. He is the best political writer uh, in America and sort of the gold standard by which other political writers measure themselves because he's thoughtful, uh, he's uh, sensitive and insightful. Um, And uh, I sat down with him the other day to take stock of this very, very crazy presidential race. Dan Baltz, you are, people use terms like the dean, the dean of, of Washington political journalism, the dean, but you really are the, you are the, the, the sort of gold standard when it comes to Washington and to national political coverage. Um, did you start out with the thought that someday you were going to become a political reporter? No, I really didn't. I, I started out with the idea that I'd become a reporter. Uh, and you always wanted to be a reporter. Well, I mean, you know, always being where, how far back do you go? I mean, I, it's, it's hard to recall, um, exactly when it kind of crystallized until college. I mean, it was really in college that I focused on becoming a reporter. I, I saw some reference to something my mother had saved years ago that when I was much younger, I said I wanted to be a writer or something, but uh-huh. that was a pretty unfocused thing. It was. It was in. You grew college. up in Illinois. I grew up in Illinois. I grew up in Freeport, home of one of the or site of one of the Lincoln Douglas debates up in the northwest part of the state. Yeah, and went to the University of Illinois for college, and it, my brother, who uh, also later became a journalist, urged me when I was a freshman at the end of my freshman year. He said, you should go to work for the student newspaper, the Daily Illini, which was a five-day-a-week kind of independent you know, newspaper for the, 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 that we ran. And I did that in my sophomore year and got hooked on journalism. Um, what, what about it? Um, everything about it. You know, I, I loved, I loved reporting. I loved writing. I loved watching the, you know, this was in the old days of, you know, of hot type of metal, t- you know, love being in the composing room when the, the compositors and the printers were putting the, you know, the pages together. Uh, I, I think there was something infectious about it. You felt like you were part of, you know, watching unfolding history. And this was back in the sixties when, history was really unfolding on college campuses so almost everything about it kind of captivated me and i kept at it well let me just ask you what you mentioned the 60s was um was there a lot of activity on the university of illinois campus anti-war activity it it came later i mean this 
the, the year I started at the Daily Alliance was 1965, fall mm-hmm. of 1965. You know, Vietnam was an issue at that point um, on many campuses. It had not quite come to the U of I at that point, um, but it did later. And uh, you know, in my you know in my last couple of years on the paper there. There was a lot of activity, a lot of anti-war protest, and um, and you were covering those. We were covering those. Yeah, I was covering those. And and in the in the fall of '67, the march on the Pentagon, Roger Simon, who you know yes, well, and yes, I, great and, columnist now for the Politico, now with Politico, one of my oldest friends, um, and we were on the paper together. And a third friend named Don Reuter, um drove out here to Washington to cover the march on the Pentagon, uh, and so. Uh, we were in the we were in the thick of it. Um, the other thing that happened to me during those those years was I got a summer internship here in Washington. My congressman at the time was one John B. Anderson, who, oh, yes. who later became well known for running for the Republican nomination in 1980 and then running as an independent. So I worked in Washington for a summer, and it was that combination of journalism and you know and Washington that you know that stimulated in me a kind of a desire to be a Washington reporter. I, I more or less stumbled into political reporting when I went to the went to the Post in 1978. I had spent five and a half years at National Journal, starting out there as an economics reporter, if you can believe that. Hmm. And uh, pretty active beat back in the it was in that in the 70s. Very active beat. I mean, the wage and price controls and the Russian grain deals and you know and budget issues and um, you know it was it was not quite Watergate. Uh, f- the beat I was on was not quite Watergate, but it was a it was a Lock stimulating time. But uh, it really wasn't until I got to the post that I kind of shifted or got drawn into politics. What was the first presidential campaign you covered? Well, I I mean the first convention I covered was Chicago '68. Um, I was, I had just graduated from Illinois and had gone to work, uh, for my hometown paper. I was, I was, uh, 1A in the draft. So I, my days were, were numbered in one, one form or another. Uh, so I went back home and spent the summer at home working for the paper there. We had one credential for the, for the convention and nobody wanted it. And, you know, I was the junior person on the staff. And so I said, well, I'd, you know, I'd love to go. So I spent the week in Chicago. Yeah, uh, that's an amazing part of history. It was, a, it was an unbelievable week for me. I mean, because I spent a lot of, you know, I spent the early evenings at the convention hall. Uh, and then, you know, later in the evening, the watching the clashes uh, on, on the, the streets. streets. Yeah. You ever go back and look at those stories? I looked at them a few years ago. They're, I mean, they they are so, once I started reading, they're still so vivid. I mean, because yeah. as, as you know, I mean, that, that week was an extraordinary week in American political It history. really changed uh, everything because uh, that was the beginning of the sort of move to primaries and the de- devaluation of party bosses and so on. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you think about your early days as a political reporter and think about how election, how you cover elections now, how, how different is it? Well, I could answer it in two ways. It's, it's not different at all in one sense, and it's totally different in another sense. You sound like a politician. Yeah, I know. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> It, it, it's not different in this respect. I mean, covering politics is still, um, particularly presidential politics, is you know a quadrennial exercise in trying to understand 
where the country is um, and kind of what the collective hopes and dreams and fears and, and concerns of voters are. Uh, and then trying to match that with candidates who are doing the same thing. In other words, they're trying to, you know, they're trying to match their appeal to where they think the country is. Um, and so it, it's an effort to tell that story. And, you know, we tell it on a daily basis or, you know, or it used to be a weekly basis with the news magazines. Now it's on a minute-by-minute minute basis. But, but in, in that sense, it's still trying to explain and understand um, this, you know, this remarkable circus pageant exercise in democracy. The, the ways in which it's changed are the media has totally changed, the nature of the way political campaigns has changed, uh, and the country has changed. I mean, and so um, we, we cover it in a much more minute way today. Um, we cover everything that moves, whether it deserves to be covered or not. Right. Um, and um, we, we have, I think, a greater difficulty stepping back even a half a step or two steps uh, to keep the larger questions in mind as we are trying to follow it. Yeah, you know, I, as you know, I covered a couple of campaigns before I went over to the other side. And um, <coughs> I, like you, saw some of the great the David Broders, who David Broder was your mentor at the sure Washington was. Post, and Jack Germond and Jules Whitcover and uh, a whole generation of political reporters then who used to get in their cars and drive around states and uh, actually talk to people. And uh, that is less common now. Now it seems like we're, we cover polls, uh, we cover tweets, uh, and um, it's and as you say, it's very hard to get perspective uh, that way. Uh, especially, uh, you know, one of my pet peeves: polling, public polling is notoriously unreliable. And so, you know, we anoint people as front runners in a given state when they may not be, and we cover the horse race. I mean, do you find that frustrating? Terribly frustrating, and and it, it's not as though I'm not as guilty of it as anybody else. Well, you kind of have to be, don't you? Don't you, 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 have, you have to be in the moment, and um, that requires you know, greater attention to every poll that comes out. I think what frustrates me is uh, not only is a lot of public polling you know, not terribly reliable, but every poll seems to get seized upon as if it is new information and therefore the most important and reliable information. And so there are swings back and forth based on one particular poll. Maybe it's an outlier. Maybe it's accurate. Nobody knows at that moment. Um, and I think that more so than ever, that tends to dictate the way coverage moves. And we've seen it in this campaign more than any because there, you know, there are just so many polls that come out. And because cable news and you know, right. the big news organizations are following and competing for attention. And so they're looking for things that they can grab readers with. Yeah, and in that void strolls one Donald J. Trump. Uh, what do you make of the Trump phenomenon? It seems like he, in certain ways, is the personification of the modern sort of media environment. I mean, he's, he, he has seized on it in a way no one ever... Uh, did before 
he seems to understand it better than any other candidate. He's come at it in a very unconventional way, as you know, uh, and has made that, in a sense, the conventional way to do it, but nobody else can quite do it. I mean, his ability to dominate a news cycle or a, a week of coverage has been quite extraordinary. And to some extent, the media has been complicit in that um, because he's a controversial character and controversy drives news coverage. Right. And, and he, he, he knows that direct conversation with journalists, particularly television journalists live on the air, uh, not only fills time and brings attention to him, but then creates the narrative for, for at least the rest of that day. And he's been, you know, he's been brilliant at it. Uh, it's probably not accidental that he was a reality TV star for, you know, a decade before that. So he understands modern media. He understands Twitter uh, and what it can be. I, I had a conversation with with Newt Gingrich, the former speaker, uh, recently, and and his he said something to the effect of, you know, Trump understands that every Instagram is good, every tweet is good. Every, you know, the, the more volume, the better, whether it's good or bad for him. You just keep feeding that, and he's been you know he's been amazing at that. What do you think the larger? I know you're a guy. You 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 talked about it's a uh, campaigns are a way of gauging where the country is. What does Trump's ascendance uh, say about the country? That the country is divided, that there is, a, that there is a lot of the country, a lot of voters who are disaffected, who are alienated. Um, some are really angry. Some are moderately angry. There's a lot of resentment. Uh, there are a lot of people who think they have not been paid attention to. Um, and I think that's the core of the Trump constituency. Um, everybody could see that coming. I mean, we all knew that was kind of out there. You could see it in every poll or every focus group or every conversation, not just in the last year, year and a half. I mean, you could see it in the 2012 campaign when we were out on the trail. Um, and that that's on top You could of, see it at the McCain Palin rallies in 2008. You absolutely could. And I, I think one of the, one of the, interesting things is we all kind of put that aside at the in the fall of 2008 because you know the election of Barack Obama was a historic moment for all sort you know for all the obvious reasons and I think that there was a feeling that the country was in one way or another if not coming together uh, had a had a good feeling about his election uh, there were a lot of people who did but as we know as we should have known at the time and knew fairly quickly after, there were a lot of people who didn't. Uh, and that polarization has been there. And so uh, that has contributed to it. So, um, you know, I did a piece a few weeks ago about kind of the roots of the of the Trump constituency and the degree to which a lot of them are, are in that kind of white working class, uh, blue collar group, um, you know, who haven't seen their wages rise, who have gravitated over the years from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party, uh, and yet have not gotten much in return. I mean, the Republican economic right. orthodoxy is tax cuts that are skewed to the upper uh, upper incomes. Um, and along comes Trump and basically taps into the economic frustration and also the cultural frustration. I mean, we, we know that this is a country that's changing rapidly and more diverse and more tolerant. Uh, and there are a lot of people who are alarmed by that, who, who fear that it is taking away what made America great, to quote Trump's uh, yeah. hat. Yeah, yes. to quote his hat. Yeah. Uh, and so he's, you know, I think he's he's f- focused in on all of that. Uh, I, I just want to take a quick break for a message from our sponsor, Stamps.com. 
We'll be back in a second with Dan Baltz. We were talking about Trump uh, and uh, sort of Trumpism and the roots of Trumpism. Um, I, and I think of that rally, you, you talk about harbingers of this, that rally in Minnesota in 2008 when John McCain confronted someone who said that Obama was not a citizen, was, was a Muslim, was, uh, and I thought it was actually one of the great moments of McCain's campaign because he showed what, is, what, what, what people kind of expected from him, which is to stand up to, uh, to that. But, um, but what was clear was in a country that's becoming much more diverse very quickly, that, that Obama was a symbol to a lot of people of that change, and they weren't very happy about it. Oh, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I think that's absolutely right. <clears throat> and you could see in those rallies in the fall of 2008 that anger building and that resentment building. And I think if you put that together, if you, you know, put the overlay of the Republican leadership decision early in Obama's presidency, basically to resist anything he tried to do, that combination uh, snapped the country back in the opposite direction of what we thought was was happening. I mean, I think you and I have talked about this. There was a feeling in early 2009 that the combination of the, 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 the sense of a barrier broken with Obama and, and goodwill about his presidency, along with the depth of the problems, economic problems that the country was facing, that there might be a moment in which people would kind of come together to try to solve these problems. That didn't happen at all. And we have been on that, we've been on that circuit ever since, in which the, the, the passions uh, on both sides have so intensified and the, and the hostility toward the opposition. I mean, I think that's the other thing that, you know, debates, pol- politics is, you know, it, it, it's a rough game. It always has been. Campaigns are rough. Um, but I think that in the past, the the bad feelings toward the opponents didn't exist to the degree they do now. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember going around in 2012 and asking people at Obama rallies and Romney rallies, what happens if the other guy wins? And there was this sense of almost the, you know, of Armageddon or the apocalypse. Yeah. That, that, that Republicans thought another four years of President Obama and, you know, everything that was good about the country would be washed away. And people at Obama rallies thought every bit of progress that had been made over the last half century would be reversed if Mitt Romney and the Republicans took power. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I remember when I was a kid, uh, when Richard Nixon was elected, my mother was <coughs> crying. And I said, why are you crying? And she said, well, you know, this guy's going to, you know, destroy America or whatever. And I said, Mom, you know, we've had Republican presidents. We've had Democratic presidents. I think she was an outlier then. (laughs) I think back in the day, uh, you know, there was this sense that we have these fights and then we we come together. And um, that's that's gone. I would say this about the... um, uh, about the Obama election. One of the paradoxes of the Obama election is that um, we, uh, we, we, meaning the Obama campaign, the Democratic Party, uh, gained a huge majority in the House and the Senate uh, 
that was largely fueled by people who had this sense of d- this desire to see the country come together. Uh, and the, uh, the, Republican, the Republicans in Congress reacted in a very pragmatic way, thinking, if we're going to get these seats back, we've got we've to create some distance here. And if we cooperate... We're not going to we're not going to get anywhere, and so we're going to oppose and let him grapple with the crisis, the economic crisis, make the hard decisions, and that gives us our best chance to get these seats back. Um, and so we got these large majorities, largely because we were talking about bipartisanship, and they and they ushered in a period of really severe partisanship. Rabid partisanship, you could say. I mean, it's just yeah. I mean, deep, deep and polarizing partisanship. I think the other thing that happened, Dan, is that um, uh, Republicans then promised their voters that they were going to overturn everything that Obama was doing, and they couldn't. And so you talk about the Republican electorate that has become disaffected. I think that the inability or they you know they they uh, i think their base the republican base sees it as uh, uh you know a, a lack of will uh to, to turn overturn obamacare and common core and all of these things that became kind of headline uh causes for the republican base was a sign to them that the traditional republican establishment had failed them. I think that creates part of the Trump uh, oh, base as well. I think very much so, and I think I mean I, I think directly related to that is this is total lack of trust of every institution in the country, with the exception of the military, probably. Yeah. Um, and if if you if you think about what the quote unquote Republican establishment has tried to do vis a vis Trump, you see the kind of utter futility, at least up to this point. Uh, of their ability to affect anything with a good swath of the Republican electorate. The, the Republican electorate, uh, the, the Trump voters, have no faith in those leaders. Uh, they're not listening to them. And and I, as a result of that, the attacks on Trump just sort of fade away. Now, you know, if he becomes the, the nominee, we're into a different situation because with the broader electorate, he's very unpopular, and he would have to do something about it. But but he has he has benefited from the failure of the Republican leadership, in a sense, to deal honestly with their own people about what could be done. I mean, they've you know they've they've stoked um, fears and opposition to the Obama agenda in the midterm elections to great effect, uh, and been able to win big victories. Um, but they can't deliver on the promises as long as you've got the president of the United States there with the veto pen. And yeah, it so, turns out that we have a system of checks and balances that's designed to produce gridlock when the country is divided, and it's working pretty effectively. And, and yet, the country seems to like divided government. I mean, in, in one form or another, we'll, I mean, we'll we'll see this this fall uh, whether that begins to change. I mean, my my sense has been we're we're in a, we're in a very difficult bad period in American politics in which um, with each, you know, with each election cycle, it seems to drive things farther down or farther apart. Uh, And at some point you have to think, well, 
you know, collectively the country will say enough of that. We've got to get some things done. But I don't know that we're there uh, at this point. I mean, if, if, if you, you know, if you look forward to the fall campaign, uh, it has all the earmarks of being even more negative than 2012, by far more negative than 2008. Uh, and one in which, um, you know, instead of appealing to the better angels, uh, it's going to be attack after attack after attack. Well, isn't that uh, sort of by definition what it has to be you have two front runners in uh, in Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton who have very high negatives and that that generally is a prescription for a very tough and negative campaign I think that's right I mean it, if, if it's those two and uh, then I th- then I think that um, I think the consequences of a kind of campaign like that are that whoever wins that election has an almost impossible task at trying to govern. I mean, it will it will take a Herculean effort after a campaign like that uh, to try to govern. And and I, I don't know, I mean, one thing we know about Hillary Clinton is she is dogged about trying to get things done. I mean, if she becomes the president of the United States, she's going to work hard at trying to make the system work. But we also know that the, that the hostility to her that's built up over the last 20 years will make that very, very difficult. If Trump's the, if Trump becomes the president if he's the nominee and wins in the fall um the opposition to him will be i think even even more significant well let's talk about for i want to get to hillary and bernie sanders and the democrats let's talk about uh uh uh, whether trump actually will be the nominee it seems fairly likely that he's going to be the delegate leader if not the nominee by the end of this process what do you make of the whole brokered convention, open convention, whatever you want to call it, the notion that the party will come together in Cleveland and uh, essentially take the nomination away from him if he doesn't hit the 1237? You know, we talk about a brokered convention, but there aren't any brokers anymore. Right. There's nobody to broker it. Uh, there's nobody who has that stature uh, to, to bring the warring sides together and say, let's, you know, let's get this worked out. Um, I think the only way that that Trump would be denied the nomination is if he was well short of 1237, and there were in a, there was in a sense an organized coup to prevent him from getting it. I mean that the convention can do what it wants. The convention will write its own rules on the eve of the convention. We can't say at this point exactly what those rules would be. We think we sort of know what they are because of the way they've been in the past. But the, the rules committee will write those rules. They'll be voted on. They'll be voted on by the by the RNC and then the full convention, and then we'll see what happens. But um, who would be strong enough at that point? Who would be able to to become the consensus anti-Trump candidate? It's hard to say right now who that would be and whether they would be close enough to Trump uh, to be able to overturn it. It will be very hard to deny him the nomination, even if he's somewhat short of the 1237. If that happens, if they were to deny him the nomination, what what happens to those voters who you already said are deeply alienated from the leadership of the Republican Party, deeply alienated about institutions generally, where do they go? Uh, what happens with those voters if uh, Trump is denied the nomination? Well, I mean, that it, they have two choices, or they have two, they have two emotions uh, that they will have to wrestle with. 
One is the anger they will feel about Donald Trump being denied the nomination, and that will be significant. But the other is the anger they might feel at the prospect of, let's say, Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders becoming president of the United States. And one of those emotions is going to win out when they, you know, when they decide whether they will go and vote. Um, you know, it's possible that many would stay home, um, uh, and and in that case, it would you know it would be devastating for the Republican Party. Um, but it may well be that the but the combination of eight years of President Obama and the prospect of of another Democrat in the White House, be it Sanders or Clinton, uh, is enough to bring them to the to the fore in November. But it would take a while to get there. Um, it would be. I mean, you remember. John McCain in 2008 um, wanted to do Joe Lieberman yes. as his vice president. And he was talked out of that in part because his folks said, if you do that, you will you will tear apart the convention and we will spend the next six weeks trying to bring the party back together. Uh, and that's what the Republicans may well face under almost any scenario uh, fortunately for them, the convention is in July rather yeah. than in late August. Yeah. But it's it it's going to be a I mean it's it it could be a raucous, rowdy convention. Yeah, we're going to take another short break for a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back with Dan Baltz. For most of us, the desire to learn doesn't stop after college. That's the motivation behind the new video learning service called The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus gives you unlimited access to a huge library of The Great Courses lecture series in many subjects, including history, science, cooking, and so much more, taught by top professors. And now they're giving Axfile listeners the opportunity to watch their popular course, The Fundamentals of Photography, and hundreds of other courses for free. Filmed in partnership with the National Geographic, The Fundamentals of Photography provides valuable techniques to enhance your photography skills. Learn how to use tools like lighting, framing, and composition to take more meaningful photos. And with The Great Courses Plus, you can watch as many different lectures as you want, anytime, anywhere. The Axfile listeners can watch hundreds of their courses, including Fundamentals of Photography, a $220 value for free. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash axfiles. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash axfiles. Dan, let's talk about the the Democrats. Um, you began to talk about Hillary uh, Clinton why why has she had uh, the challenge that she's had consolidating the party this is the second stra- second time around for her uh, in a presidential race each time she started as a prohibitive favorite um and um obviously she didn't win in 2008 and now she's in this protracted uh, battle with Bernie Sanders who I would venture to say if anyone in Washington were asked 2 years ago <laughs> who the principal opponent to Hillary Clinton would be and who would be uh, giving her the challenge that she's gotten, no one would have said Bernie Sanders. Oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, the Sanders phenomenon is one of the remarkable stories of this campaign. And uh, no, no matter what happens, um, you know, he's going to get a big piece of whatever books are done about this campaign. I think a couple of things, David. Uh, one is... Hillary Clinton comes out of, in a sense, the the centrist part of the Democratic Party at a time the centrist part of the Democratic Party barely exists, um, and so she has been she has been forced to adapt to a Democratic Party that is different from the roots of her husband's 
campaign and presidency. Um, and it has been, I think, hard for her to do that. In a sense, she's been she's been playing on Bernie Sanders' turf or Elizabeth Warren's turf or whoever's turf you want to describe it, but on turf that is uncomfortable for her. And she's had, uh, I think, a very hard time kind of reconciling where she has been, um, particularly where she has been in public on issues, uh, and where the party is now. There's, you know, there is just a, you know, President Obama is well-liked by by all types of Democrats, but there is there is pent up frustration on the left in the Democratic Party, and and Sanders has you know has capitalized on that. I think the second is, and I think you've you've said it yourself. Bernie Sanders has a very simple and direct message. Um, he has a diagnosis of what he thinks is wrong, and a prescription for fixing it. You can argue about whether that's a realistic prescription, um, but there's but there's no doubt that what he is saying comes straight from inside Bernie Sanders, and that he's thought about it for a long time uh, and is delivering it authentically. Um, she has had a great deal of trouble crystallizing a message. She has a lot of messages. She, uh, right. She has a lot of ideas. She's a she's a programmatic person. Yeah, she substitutes policy for uh, for messaging. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for for every problem, she has a a, a solution, a, a particular solution. But she doesn't have a kind of overarching. She doesn't have the, the diagnosis uh, of the problem that Bernie Sanders does, and because of that, I think it's been very difficult for her to settle on a message and i think that to some extent um as you as you watch that evolve what you have this feeling that it's uh it's words and sentences and paragraphs that are written by committee uh or that are straight out of a focus group or uh, poll tested as opposed to you know the directness of bernie sanders and that goes to that that question of authenticity that you're ta- both 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 elements of this do which is uh, the left of the party doesn't really trust or embrace her as uh, as one of them. In fact, the Bill Clinton Democratic Party was a reaction to the left. And so uh, by embracing some of the language and uh, emphasis of Bernie Sanders, she calls into question her authenticity there. And then there's this other element of in scrambling uh, – to uh, to get to the to say, to higher ground on this stuff or safer ground, um, she does sound sometimes. You can see the tactics. You can sort of see the wheels uh, turning. Uh, not a great contrast with Bernie, and yet she seems to be on an inexorable march to the nomination here. Oh, I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I mean, she's. It, 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 it's funny because in some ways. She is now using the playbook that you all used against her in 2008, which is to say um, that this is a numbers game. Uh, it's not a matter of who wins which state. It's simply a matter of accumulating delegates. And because of the Democratic rules of proportionality, once you get a lead in pledged delegates, let's put aside superdelegates. That's a whole other issue. But once you get a lead in pledged delegates, it is very hard to, because to, of the rules of the Democratic Party. Yeah, I mean, Bernie Sanders would have to win, not just win states, he has to win states by a big, big margin in order to get a big enough split in the delegates. That's the that's the challenge he faces. So she is, I mean, 
it, it would be hard to imagine a circumstance under which she is denied the nomination unless something totally dramatic or unexpected happens. In fact, she has a, a, more, a, a much more significant delegate lead than Obama ever had in the uh, 2008 uh, campaign. So she, 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 by the way, she's got Obama's uh, delegate <laughs> guy, uh, Jeff Berman, right. who's really an expert on this process, uh, working for her. The now. interesting thing, though, is that, that up until now, they have been somewhat reluctant to sort of play that delegate math. They've done it a little bit, but but um, I remember in 2008 when when you all and and I remember Pluff in particular said, you know, this is now we we have a lead in pledged delegates. This is all about delegates, and here's why you know Hillary Clinton can't catch up and change the narrative of that race, uh, even as she began to win some primaries. Um, and in a sense, you're going to hear that more and more from from the Clinton campaign. But is, it doesn't take away the questions about her as a candidate. Is it uh, is there a danger also in the fact that Bernie Sanders' whole deal is the game is rigged by the establishment and the sense that if he starts winning but she's uh, on the road to the nomination that you'll create alienation on uh, among the Democratic base? Well, there is that risk. Uh, you know, on the one hand, the rules are the rules, and, you know, it behooves every candidate to figure out how to take maximum advantage of the rules. I think what Sanders is hoping is that, that he can create a kind of a, a, a wait-a-minute sen- sensibility within the, within the party uh, that would, in one way or another, try to go against the, you know, the inexorable rules of, of delegate math. But that's very difficult. But, uh, but given the kind of uh, sensibility... It, at the grassroots of the Democratic Party, he has a he has an audience that's prepared to hear that argument that he's going to make, and it will create a, an additional problem for her. Do you think he's been scrutinized as the potential nominee? I mean, do you think I mean, there because there's this assumption, and you and I just aired it that she's going to be the nominee? Um, he's been. Uh, it's it it feels as if he's gotten less attention. Uh, not attention to what he says, but attention to uh, his record, to you know the the practicality of his ideas, and so on. Um, or uh, uh, am I misreading that? Well, our editorial page has been very, very harsh about his agenda, um, and I obviously don't speak for the editorial page or write the editorials or know what they're going to say. But they've, they've, been very, they've been very tough on him. But I think your point is correct, that in general, uh, the news coverage has been much tougher on Hillary Clinton than on Bernie Sanders. Now, to some extent, you would, you would expect that. She started out the race as the front runner and right. has continued yes. to be the front runner. And the front runner always gets more scrutiny. I think it, it, the, the closer Sanders, had he, had he gotten it, very, very close, um, the scrutiny would have increased. Um, but I, I think that in many ways, until he can show that he's got a real path to the nomination, there will be less attention to the details of what he's talking about, and particularly the practicality of what he is talking about. So it seems to me there's a larger thing, and you, you've, you've sort of hinted at it in this conversation. There's a larger question in this race between them, which is, and maybe in both parties, the notion of what is achievable and possible in a closely divided country, uh, in a system that's designed to make change very difficult. 
versus uh, candidates who give a full voice to the kind of aspirations of their uh, of their base, uh, even if what they're proposing may not. You know, I, I give you an example. Uh, uh, I had Bernie Sanders on this podcast. He said he's for single payer health care. I acknowledged. I wish we did have single payer health care. I think it would be great. But uh, I, I point out to him that he was there when we couldn't even get a public option in in the Affordable Care Act, and um, I asked how he was going to get. And he said, "We're going to have millions of people march on Washington and so on." But uh, the fact is, it, when you look at polling, the the country is pretty divided on the notion of single payer uh, health care. Uh, so. You know, you can see Hillary Clinton's frustration because she, she, you, you saw it in two thousand and eight as well. She's she's a, a master of the system, and she, her point is, you know, I know how to get things done, and I know what we can get done, and I, you can see her sort of seething <laughs> as she listens uh, to him. But it is there is a larger question here, which is what what. On the one hand, you want to be aspirational. On the other hand, you don't want to mislead people. It, it's it's a terrible dilemma, and you can you you really can see it in her candidacy. I mean, she's. I remember having a conversation with Ann Lewis, who's a longtime friend of hers, years ago, and I said, "How do you explain? I mean, what's the core of Hillary Clinton?" And she pointed me to what what Secretary Clinton now often says in public, this John Wesley, do all you can right. in every way you can, every day you can. I mean, it's just that kind of you get up every morning and you, you know, if you can only get forward one inch, you do that. And then another inch the next day. Um, that's not an aspirational message. Right. Uh, that's a practical message. And people want to be inspired. I mean, that's one of the realities of, of life. People want to look to leadership that is inspiring, uh, and that in one way or another says we can do terrific things. We can, you know, we can build a great country, or whatever, you know, whatever the slogan is. Um, you know, President Obama had it. You know, Donald Trump has it in a, in a, what I would say is a negative way, but it's a it, it's a message that that resonates. Bernie Sanders has a big message, um, and the reality is. People want on either side a kind of winner-take-all notion. If we win, we get to do these things. Uh, and therefore, they're looking for a candidate who says, yes, we're going to win and we're going to do all the things that I'm talking about. The system will not allow it right now. The system, you know, the political system is too divided. Um, but it is not a system that rewards practicality or a kind in of campaigns. A, or in campaigns or a kind of a, a small bore message. And I think that's the, that's the frustration that people feel. And it's why after we get through an election, things settle in and, and one side or the other or both sides feel let down. Yeah. I mean, one of the realities of the Obama presidency is a lot of the major pieces that he achieved. He achieved when he had large democratic majorities in the Congress, and without them, he wouldn't have been able to achieve them. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And there's there's no foreseeing, um, you know, if if the Democrats win the White House, the president is going to be dealing with a Republican House and probably a Republican Senate and lots of Republican governors. I mean, it's you know, it is a it is a red and blue country, and that you know, wh- whoever is smart enough to figure out how to go through that maze. Um, might be rewarded, but it's going to take tremendous effort. Yeah, Dan Dan Baltz, uh, 
always a pleasure to talk to you. We've had many, many conversations <laughs> yes, over have. the years, and I always uh, and they always end with me thinking, "Geez, there's a thoughtful guy." So, <laughs> thank I, you. I so appreciate you being here. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.